Welcome to the Utah Apocopalians, a podcast of the Diocese of Utah, where we examine our unique state and how it affects our unique church. I'm Craig Worth of the Diocese, and today a very special guest because the subject is all about Sunday school. You know, the kids are back in school, and that means they're also back in church school. Well, Russ Pack of St. Paul's Church in Salt Lake City knows more about Sunday school than about anyone. Why? He spent 27 years teaching just about every age group at St. Paul's, specializing in preschool. But he's done second to third grade and, well, kids of all age. And he has some unique perspectives of how Sunday school has changed, about some of the things that Sunday school means to us, and maybe in a modern world, what we should be doing as Christians in educating our youth. Welcome, Russ. It's so great to see you. And let's get started. In the 50s, it was a whole different type of Sunday school. I recall that. We would draw pictures of camels. We learned Noah's Ark probably in every grade. We learned, um, tried to bring in what the Bible meant to us. And we really were kind of isolated. We never reached outside of church. I can tell you probably I didn't know much about poverty. I didn't know much about diversity. I knew about the Bible. Now today there's a little bit different emphasis and I know you've worked very hard to create that emphasis. What is the difference? So I think a lot of it comes from just the cultural change from from the 50s and 60s until um, where we are today. Children are so much more aware of the outside world and what's happening I think. There, there, there still is an innocence, which is not a bad thing whatsoever, but the, but the reality of what's happening in the world around them. And the, and the notion, I think, that we've been working towards is, is helping children at, at a, an appropriate age to understand what's happening outside of them and then how does what, what they're being taught in Sunday school relate to or how is it relevant to what they're seeing outside. Like hungry, when we're talking about being hungry, what does that exactly mean? What can you do, you know, you're talking to a, uh, somebody in preschool, you're talking to maybe sometimes a six-year-old, a seven-year-old. We don't really want to scare them. I know they're aware of shooting, sadly. I know they're aware of hunger. What do you do on a church basis that um, often kids are coming in with perhaps even fear? What do you do to say, okay, this is how a Christian church should handle that? So I think the, probably the best example that we've used in the last two or three years has been Jesus feeding the 4,000 or the 5,000. And in the, in the past, that was sort of taught as this miracle story that the, the, the fish and bread all of a sudden was sufficient to feed everyone there. And, and more recently, we focused on the notion of sh- sharing. What does that mean to share? So they understand, they understand that other children, like themselves elsewhere, may be hungry. And maybe someone in the classroom is hungry that very day because we have, we're an urban church. So the notion of what does it mean to share and why is that good? So they hear the story of feeding the 4,000, but they also understand that part of the solution to that, even though there was the miracle of feeding, may be what can we do today, which is sharing. We share with one another. And so don't just teach the story of this miracle of Jesus, but we share with each other because there, there is enough and we have an abundance, as we say. How do we share? So, children today, you're looking at the world then 
on a little more urban basis, on a little more realistic basis, perhaps, um, what do you do then to show that, like you said, innocence is nice and to feel secure and safe and to know church is a secure and safe place is nice? How do you do that balance? So another example I think of that's good is, is we're talking right now about safety, um, safety in the church. And so we, we, we would tend not to ring up shooters among young children. It's too, too frightening for them. But when we have the great shakeout in Salt Lake, in our, the program, the Liquid Preparedness Program in Salt Lake City, we teach them about that in a way we've had the fire department come and talk to the children in a way that reassures them this is what happens and you'll, you'll be made safe, but we had to be prepared for that sort of thing to happen. Um, rather than just saying, you know, there might be a shooter, and so if it happens, duck and run. You know, we don't do children. But how do you, how do you understand that in the real world, there are people that aren't very good in the world, but the notion of church and families and friends and associations and community are there to to protect one another, starting with the starting with the church and the children, but of course then broadening outside. And as the children get older, as they're teenagers as well, they start, they're, they're very pragmatic in today's world. They understand that as well. They, they get that training elsewhere, but in the church, that's sort of our, our refuge. It's our refuge from so many things. Why do you think today is perhaps even more important than before that children participate in a church school program? So I think two two things. Number one, I think here in, I'll talk about the Diocese of Utah, obviously, and here where we are because of the predominant culture. Our, our children, unless they're really involved in church, they hear so much from the other culture about, I'm eight years old, I'm being baptized, I'm being confirmed now, I'm becoming a deacon. And so from that perspective, I think it's very important for our children to realize that we're in a Christian community and we do this, we do similar traditions that are, that are very important to us and we hold them dear. And then um, I think also the, the fact that they, that, that they are exposed to so many things in the world. They see things at, at school, um, they see things on the news, they see things on social media that make them apprehensive about what may be happening elsewhere. I mean, we talk about climate change. That was it, it has been an issue. Drought has been an issue for a very long time, but climate change is in the forefront of their, what their minds are right now. What does that change? What do they see? And how do you age appropriately talk to those children about what does that mean? What can they do? And how do you do that? That's a, that's a really good one because there is something that, as we know from Genesis, we are the stewards of the earth. That's the first book of the Bible, it might be one of the first lessons that can be taught to kids. And how do you do that? What do you do when you're sitting there with a room full of seven-year-olds to talk about something that complex? So most of the, most of the time that you, you talk about those, those archetypal biblical stories, the Hebrew scriptures and that, they, I think they need to know those stories first of all because they are archetypal stories. So. They need that understanding, a basic understanding, but, but then it has to go way beyond that. So if you talk Noah's Ark and you talk a flood, what does that mean when there's a flood somewhere? And we talk, back with our children, we talk very specifically about landslides that happen or mudslides that occur because there's too much rain in the area after a drought or a fire. So, so we can relate to Noah's time and his flood, whatever he experienced and he and his family experienced. Today may be very localized, what, what can we do? How do we prepare for that? How do we help each other? So it's not just the story of Noah and the Great Flood. It's the story of, in our time, 
things are happening that are right around us and how can we help, what can we do, um, what, pro what programs, how do we involve with the community, um, our, our engagement in that regard, how do we prepare if something should happen? I think one thing that struck me uh, on a visit to St. Paul's once and um, observing what you have done and what you do and other than the delight in the kids, they love you. I know Thank that. You. I I, I, love those kids. I just saw that type of um, unbelievable, um, just having fun and joy. But I noticed in the back, um, I was looking at some of the costumes that you have done for various pageants, and then of course the the all important Christmas pageant that every kid in in um, Sunday school always remembers. And there was something different than what I'd gone through in the 50s. And I noticed that um, the costumes were not gender-specific, age-specific. And that didn't impress me because I thought, you know, for the first time, Jesus wasn't thought of as a male figure. Uh, the shepherds even weren't thought of as male or angels as female. Do you want to explain how that happened? what your concept was. I think that was brilliant, sir. I was impressed. Well, thank you. So it actually was serendipity more than anything, but early on in the 90s, we do the Christmas pageant, and the and for two or three years in a row, we talk about it's time for the pageant, and the kids would go, oh, no, no. We don't want to do, I have to do that. And so we started thinking about what might make it more fun for the children. How could they be, how could they re-engage in the process? So as opposed to saying third graders, you're the shepherds, and, and fifth graders, you're the magi, or in that case, we say the wise man, um, and, and Mary was always the 14-year-old teenage girl. We started talking about what would you like to do? And if they chose not to be a character in the play, that was okay. If they chose, if it was a, if it was a girl that wanted to be one of the magi, all the better. So then we started talking about baby Jesus a little bit, and a lot of that, again, was serendipitous. We we always look for a newborn, maybe, well, not new, newborn, necessarily, but six-month-old to be the baby Jesus. And so um, one year we had an African-American girl, and we thought, that's the perfect baby Jesus. And, you know, at, we talked about the response from the parents. It's interesting. So I think there are a few eyebrows raised with the folks who were in their, you know, of a certain age, as we say, of a certain age. because it, but. It was very well received, and the children loved it. They re-engaged. They were happy. They were laughing. And so now we just say, would you like to be in the play? And they're in the play, they're happy. or would you like to be a stagehand? Or would you like to help set up? Or would you like to help clean up afterwards? Or would you like to help the children queue up as they go in and be just, and we have monitors sitting on HP to make sure the children are quiet. So rather than having a teacher say, be quiet, we have another student who's looking at them, so it's a peer thing when they're asking. So I think those things have helped. What are some of the examples that um, have delighted you? You mentioned having a baby Jesus that, um, and, and very different than uh, what I witnessed in Christmas pageants is, uh, 60 years ago. Um, what are some of the other d delights that you have witnessed with um, people that um, have taken some of these roles and and what it meant to them and what it meant to you. I understand one year that you were able to have one of the Down Syndrome children participate in a role that uh, 
meant so much to that child and to you. It did. So we so we did. We had a, in fact it was the angel Gabriel who was able to take the baby Jesus and bring the baby Jesus and and put into the Blessed Mother's arms, and um, that was one of those moments that was so tender to to me personally, but to the to the to the folks in the congregation but also to the mother of this child who had never before ever been in a Christmas pageant to have sort of the star role of Gabriel standing the whole time. It was a very tender moment. And um, I think it changed, it, it changed, it was a shift in the way of thinking about things. It wasn't a role that people earned to become Angel Gabriel when you're ready to graduate from middle school or high school. It was, it was what does Angel Gabriel really m mean? What do you hope that a child would gain. Um, I know at some point in the service, the children reunite with the parents, and for me it was always, look what I drew. Um, perhaps there's a deeper lesson that you hope when they come back and their parents or guardian or friend or whatever says, what did you learn? What do you hope they, what do you hope that they learn? What do you hope that they say to that? Uh, person. Yeah, that's that's really because I, I, first of all, I hope that it's different with every family, what they might, how they might reflect among themselves about what it meant. So first of all, I think there's, certainly parents will say, did you have, did you have fun or I was so proud of you, you did a really good job walking up there. But then I, I was again going back to the Down syndrome, I think I gave them a chance to sort of talk and to see things differently because she, because she had a very prominent role. I think I can tell you the children when we talked about when we had the African American baby Jesus, uh, little girl, that was a big conversation for them also. They, as I was there lining up, I hear them talking about it. And, and they, it's, it's, they weren't saying, oh, it's a girl, she shouldn't be Jesus. They, I don't think it even occurred to them that it was outside of that stereotype. What, what happened, the difference, the biggest difference between 92 and 2018 when you finally uh, said, okay, <laughs> I've, I've done this uh, through three generations or whatever. What, um, what was the biggest difference that you saw? So early on, I don't think, I mean, the church did a, did an, a good job of, of the lectionary-based programs and trying to tie things in. What I saw the biggest change is that, that everyone seemed to be more receptive to not adhering to the formula for teaching Sunday school, not adhering to necessarily years A, B, and C in lectionary. We looked at are the six-year-olds we have this year the same as the six-year-olds we had five years ago? Or is it a different group of people? We looked at their, their family situation, and, I, and everyone to a person, clergy and lay people, understood that concept, that, that you, you don't force this, again, formula in teaching children, but you look at what our needs are that year, how do we combine the children's classes? We may combine them differently because Children at different levels of maturity, um, but there was never any pushback at all. And looking at what would work better this year, what might be more fun this year, I will also say though that that the children still love the things. I mean, they still like salt dough. I mean, they like salt dough. I'm making a little village out of it. That's fun for them. Surprisingly, the children would rather do flannel flannel board stories than they would anything else. To tell really. Them. They love flannel board stories. It's amazing. And you think of all the things that they have, and I have this great book with, that I've saved over the years with flannel board characters, and they absolutely still love that. So even here are kids that are playing with computers right. that have every video game. 
that uh, they'll still love flannel, flannel board. And, and salt dough. I mean, go figure, salt dough. Really? Really. Mm -hmm. And they still do things like they like the raisin mix if you're talking about what food do they eat at the time. They sort of like that. And they'll eat, in that regard, they'll eat you know, figs that they wouldn't otherwise eat. Because it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible, yeah. You know, our guest today, Russ Pack of St. Paul's Church in Salt Lake City, been one of the most delightful uh, people in the area of Sunday school education, of children just learning about the Christian values, Christian beliefs, and, and that word values, Russ, um, uh, we were very history-based, we were very you learn this, you learn what Isaiah said and all that, but maybe we didn't learn some of the values of Christianity in the real world. Um, uh, am I correct in that assumption? I think you are. In fact, I don't remember really he hearing the word I mean, in that regard, the sense of value. And, and I think there's a, a, a switch too from we learned, at least I learned in those early days that the notion was that we obey, we, ob we obey what Jesus tells us to do. We obey the commandments. And the real shift has been away from that word obey to more of, uh, more of, an, of an application outside. How do we apply that to other people? That's been a real shift, not just in the church, but I think among, with the children in general. Do you think children are growing up too quickly? And the church might should be the place to hold them back. <laughs> in some some regards, because I, I think it's important for children to have that period when they're young, a period of innocence. It, it is important, and to have some joy in things and not be worried all the time. I mean, the church is a place where certainly they they can go and have fun and be with their friends like that and feel safe and and not feel a sense of anxiety or again growing up too fast or or, a, or an obligation to be. Um, so contributory early on. They, they need, that's okay to be, you know, to be, I think, innocence and, and not necessarily naivete in a bad sense, but naivete is, can be a good thing for children. Up to a certain age. Up to a certain age, yeah. And you kind of tenderly bring them into that. Right. Um, do you think what's happened that they, you, you've had such great success in um, retention, in just children looking forward to it, second, third, fourth grade, sometimes they get into junior high, high school, and they're not as willing to want to participate. Um, I know that wasn't your specialty, but what do you think happened that um, makes some of the kids kind of fall away, not only in the Episcopal Church, but in others? In all churches. I think it goes back to the fact that they, they, they didn't really see the relevance of certain things. They, they didn't understand, so they learn the scriptures, they understand the relevance of what that was. I think it's just natural children, when they get that age, they, they push back a little bit in everything. So that's the time to start looking, and our priests have been very good through the years, looking and, and thinking, what do we need to do? So maybe that, so we might switch that year to say, for the middle school children, this is what we're going to do differently. They won't be, in, they, they won't be involved in the same way in the small classrooms. They may have their own time. We've had conversation hours with older people in their 20s, older than the teenagers, but they've had that conversation privately so that they still continue to come with their families, but not in their in the routine of you come at 9.30 for Sunday school and at 10 o'clock, I mean 10.30 you stay for long. It's too long, it's too long for kids at that age. It's just too long for them. We've had to make some big changes. Um, 
what would happen if you went back and pulled those old lesson plans out from the 50s and tried to teach them today? <laughs> well, I, you look at them yourself first, you just have to look at the illustrations, which are always sort of, sort of pretty funny. I mean, the, the moms with the aprons and you know, the children sitting with their Sunday best, sitting in a circle, listening to the, the female teacher, I think ends up being more humorous. On the other hand, I will tell you, my my personal Bible that I had growing up that I still use had wonderful illustrations, and the kids are still, if, if, I, if I see, you know, a, a picture of, of, you know, Moses parting the Red Sea in this beautiful painting, they still are kind of, they find that sort of awesome in, in that regard. Why is it important that children go to Sunday school? I think it's it's absolutely critical to their to their Christian faith for one thing to have an understanding of their Christian faith. I think that's very important. I think it's important for them to understand they're part of a community when they go to Sunday school. I think that they need to understand that Sunday school, or as we call it, church school, is an aspect of learning not dissimilar from what they learn in in their secular education, but it's equally important. And they both have application in different ways, but, but Sunday school, church school, is, is really critical in, in um, I think, in childhood development, in family structure, whatever the family structure might be, as, as important as other learning aspects. A subject that I would imagine even in 1992 we wouldn't have had to bring up, certainly not in 1952, but that is, um, a lot of parents entrust you with their children. They entrust the Sunday school program with their children. Parents today want their children, like I would hope they do, to know that they're safe, that the environment is safe. What efforts does the Episcopal Church go through to make sure that those who have been entrusted with their care in Sunday school, in church school as you call it, um, that they have been very carefully vetted, they're good people. They, what, what lengths does the Episcopal Church go through? So I, I love the fact that we have this safe space training for the children in the church that we, that we, all, that we all do. In the diocese, those of us who are involved more than just weekly teaching have, have training as well, and we have resources here, so I like that. I think in, in my case, I've always been careful on children, but it makes brings, makes me aware. So in our church, for example, the church office is on the second floor. And it wouldn't, wouldn't have occurred to me, quite honestly, in the early 90s, that I, that I wouldn't walk up with a child and get some materials and go down to a classroom. Um, and now I know, I mean, it wouldn't occur to me because nothing was going to happen, obviously. But now I know that there's that perception, so what do we do? I like the fact that we have background checks. I think that's good. Unfortunately, not everyone that wants to be a Sunday school teacher might be the best person to be a Sunday school teacher. I like the fact that we have team teaching in all of our classrooms. We leave, we know to leave doors open. It protects the children. It makes the parents feel better. But we also have an open open setting. So when the, if the parents want to walk up, sit in the classroom. If they want to sit outside the door and listen in. They're very welcome to do that, and a lot of parents take advantage of that, especially when their children are younger and the children are nervous themselves. But the training, I think, is probably, I've had other training for other uh, nonprofits where I'm involved, and I think the church training is, is the right training and for the right reasons to safe, safeguard children and the teachers. And as a diocesan employee, I do know of the training and that 
in the uh, Diocese of Utah, whether it's at St. Paul's or any one of our other 20 churches, that Sunday school teacher has been vetted, has had a full background check, I mean a very full, as if he or she was employed by the diocese, a background check in, in a number of, of uh, areas, and so there is that safe component, which is imperative, which is important, um, because it is a slightly different world. What can a parent expect if, or not just a parent, I mean a friend, a guardian, a whomever, would um, watch that child go off into one of those rooms and learn what can they expect would go on in time-wise in a Sunday school? What can they expect would happen if a new child enters the program where others have been around? What are some of those things? And I know some visitors, that's one of their first questions. What is there for my children? Right. And, and what is your answer? You know it. You've been there. What is the answer? So, so I think with new folks, we, we try to first to bring them into the classroom if they're visiting and say, this is what we do in our classroom. This is where we have cubbies for your children. I always make sure that the children have something to take out with them also. The parents like to see that they've, they've had a project, they've done something they're working in, not necessarily just a treat, but they've done something they can take home, or we put up on the bulletin board. I think that rightfully the parents should expect that their children are made welcome, they're, they're there to feel safe, but they're learning something, and they're with other children who share the same background, the same interests. So it, it builds community for the parents also if they're outside the classroom door. I, so I expect them to build community as well while their children are in the classroom. And you expect that um, it's also, seems to me it's an exercise too, that a parent will know that that child will be around other children that perhaps they wouldn't run into on a daily basis. I know in an urban parish, as your church is, that they might see a diversity that they wouldn't recognize in their own neighborhood. And um, why is that important? So because that's the real world, I think. First of all, that's the real world. Secondly, that they, the children understand when they come to and they see other people that are in the church, they understand the worldwide nature of what the church is and who we, who we are as a people and as a community. So, and that they're made to feel welcome, irrespective of, of who they are. Again, different families, not an, not a typical family. That they're, that's part of what the world is. And there's, and there's camaraderie and community that comes out of that. And in our church, um, we are um, an inclusive church. There will be no judgment, no um, uh, designation of uh, who your parents are, right? right? I right. mean, I know that's part of your training too, that uh, uh, it isn't, you don't refer to mommy and daddy, right? Or you don't refer to, well, maybe just final, that is uh, something that maybe you could talk about more than I certainly can in summing up, but you don't use words like mommy no. and daddy, or no. <laughs> you don't use words your nuclear family. What what is it you say? Right. So so we we always have. A, a get. I mean, I always talk to the parents first. Understand what the way they are. If they're guardians or grandparents, or if it's a same gender couple, or a single person that has children. Find out a bit. And I and I think it's important to ask them how they like to be how they like to be represented as other children in the classroom. So we don't always say. We, we never say mommy or daddy or your, necessarily your parents or anything. We might talk about your family because that covers a lot, a lot of, a lot of the family. Um, 
but we don't really say we certainly don't use those that vocabulary about you know your your mommy or like unless we know specifically as a child that says you know when they say well I, they're four and they say well I need to go see my mommy then of course we would do that and we're very careful I think I think the church the church has made us aware and made us aware of how important it is to have that understanding and the openness and that what diversity means. Well, it's a fascinating discussion, and it sounds like I should have come to your classes. Yes. I, I would have <laughs> You're very much enjoyed it. And, and i got to say, next door to where our diocese is and where we're recording this, uh, Father Tyler Doherty uh, does a, a wonderful job. I've actually gone to his uh, uh, young people's um, masses that he does because I've learned far more. Right. And again... I can, I'm allowed to go to it because I've gone through that background training. Right. Again, right. there's just no one walks into that room that right. hasn't been background. But I've learned a lot That's in Sunday right. school. <laughs> I should have uh, <laughs> go back onto that. But um, you've been listening to the Utah Podcopalians with our special guest, Russ Pack of St. Paul's Church in uh, Salt Lake City. And it's a fascinating discussion of what Sunday school is now than what it was in the 50s, 60s, 70s, or even the 80s or 90s. And I'm Craig Worth of the Diocese, and thanks a lot for listening.